We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. The Arsenal Vision post-match podcast has stunningly obtained audio, explosive audio, detailing Ivan Gazidis' discussion with Sir Chips about the image problem he's causing for the club. Let's take a listen. I'm afraid we have a bad image, sir. Market research shows people see you as something of an ogre. You're a club and eat their bones. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I am joined by Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. And Clive's on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Scott Willis will be uh, on down the road to give us his statistical breakdown of something fascinating about the game that none of us will understand until Tim and Clive unpack it and explain it for us. Uh, and, you know, that makes everything worthwhile in the end. So um, we're going to dive into the Swansea match, a comfortable, easy win that was at no point in any doubt. Um, but before we do, Tim, just really, really quickly, it's been written about, it's been covered, it's been debated. I don't think we have to do a deep dive. Um but I just wanted to get your sense of whether the AGM and what happened at the AGM is kind of just behind-the-scenes drama, Tempest in a teapot stuff, or if it's something that we should actually be worried about on a, on a deeper level. I mean, I, I kind of think it is, um, but we didn't learn anything at the AGM that we didn't already know, that Kronke doesn't really care that much and that Chips Keswick... Um, you know, has, has, shall we say, an interesting attitude to anyone that's probably got, you know, earns below 200 oh, million Tim, pounds a year. Tim, I'm, I'm getting a message right now, actually. Uh, this is just coming to me in email. It's actually from Chips, and he says, uh, get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that you see that I could believe. So we we kind of we knew all that already. Um, so we didn't learn anything at the AGM as kind of contemptible as some of it was. And I think really Stan Kroenke probably, you know, he, he's probably quite happy that Sir Chips um, took all the headlines by by basically being a bit of a bastard because it takes some of the heat off him. Not that I think he really cares that much about the heat, but at the same time. And and it is, you know, I'm I'm a little bit depressed about it, about the idea that, you know, Stan Kroenke's son is on the board. So we're in for like a long time of, of, of Kroenke rule, as it were, which is quite depressing. But at the same time, I do think the single biggest issue with Arsenal is the manager. And I think if we hired Pep Guardiola tomorrow, um, I, you know, I don't like I don't think Stan Kroenke or Sir Chips Keswick is actively stopping Arsenal from being more successful they're just not doing anything to help they're they're benign basically um so if we got a superb manager in tomorrow like if we if somehow like we got Pep Guardiola he'd be left to do his own thing and that'd be fine because he's brilliant and would probably win the league within two years so you know I don't think the ownership is actively stopping us from doing anything there's no evidence that they're stopping money or anything like that um but that said, they're not going to take that kind of first step, you know, and actually drive the club right. on. Um, we're going to need that at manager or coach level, um, which is possibly a little bit unfair. But hey, it's where we are. And if we got that, I think everything would be rosier pretty much instantly. It'll be very hard to evaluate how harmful the ownership model is until we have a new manager. Um, yeah. until the footballing structures are overhauled because our manager is so much in control of everything that happens on the footballing side of the business that we really don't have a clear picture of how this ownership uh, structure would influence the footballing side of the business. And we won't know that until Arson leaves. Um, Clive, just really quickly, so I don't leave you out of the conversation because you're such an intelligent and articulate uh, and erudite man that we want to get your opinions on everything. Um I mean, are you hurt that Chips hates you and people like you and all people who uh, buy tickets and attend uh, the game, or do you think that's all just uh, something that we can we can ignore or should ignore? Ignore it. We all know he's a figurehead chairman that's only there to fold a position. He's I not think you'll find he's chairman. not only a figurehead chairman, he's also an ear horn salesman. I'm convinced that's yeah. what he does. You know, there's old timey ear horns too. <laughs> He's trapped in another century, and Arsenal are, tra- are almost trapped in their own values. Right? And so we talk about the Tim's point about the manager is is absolutely valid, but really we are we end this model that's self-sustainable, which means we are going to work within the numbers that we generate, which limits us to a point. All the teams that are bigger than us do not do that; they have a more speculative model. So straight away we are we are trapped in our values. That's what we decide to do, and so that gives people an excuse. And I think Cronky probably thinks, well, I gave an interview to Telegraph a day before. What more do they want? I'm an owner that doesn't get involved. I'm doing my job. I don't understand why the natives are wanting me to talk. What do you want me to talk about? I'm just a majority owner. I mean. <laughs> These other people run the club and everyone's can point the finger at everybody at somebody else without anybody taking accountability to really drive the thing forward. So we end up in a period of stasis, which we all know potentially could last a long time until the sun dies, which could be <laughs> many years down the road. So that's where we are. That's the model. We're trapped in it. And all that can really take us forward is a, a change of ownership 
I think ownership because I think the manager and the owner so you don't think come as a pair. You don't think there's a scenario where Kroenke is the owner and we have a different manager and the football structures are overhauled and suddenly we look like a more contemporary, prepared to compete uh, football club. You 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 believe as that, long as he's in charge that that will not happen. I suppose when a new manager comes on board, he's going to say, well, I want to run the club this way. And there needs to be an acceptance of that. And that is the only way we could drive a different model. Should, should we and go so, to that model, though? Or, or or should we do the... I mean, that's basically what we've done with Arson. Would we be better off saying we're going to put in a director of football, we're going to stratify football operations more, the manager is really going to be a first-team coach, and we're going to have specialists who who do different jobs and not concentrate power in the hands of, of a single uh, a manager coach who, who runs the whole football operation. Yes. That gives us layers in the organization. So it takes away the single point of failure dependency. Great. But the model, how we approach things, some of the, some of those specialist scouting, etc., in the background, they're not working efficiently. And so that's the sort of thing that we really need to drive. And, that's, and that, needs, that requires new people, not just a structure, but new people within that structure that are, that are forward-thinking. And I'm not saying that the club is not forward-thinking. They do many forward-thinking things. And I, I honestly believe that some of the statistical stuff that we have within the club is not being fully maximised because I don't believe that the current coaching staff massively 100% believe in it and I think we could get a lot more from that so um, so yeah we're, we're, we're trying to go in a direction it feels as though people in the club are trying to pull in slightly different directions trying to tweak at the structure just so we're not so dependent in the years upcoming but that two years could easily be four years before we see a change in the manager in my opinion so yeah, um, yeah I mean it is, it is what it is you'd be hard pressed to, to- you know, put your money on the idea that Arson's going to go at the end of this contract. I, you know, what drives me nuts about these uh, speeches that are given and the way the club talks about itself is when they start talking about class and tradition and we have a way of doing things the right way and the manager says, oh, I, I try to think about the club in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, anytime I think about where I'm going today. And it bothers me because I think those are e- easy and nice things to talk about instead of on-the-field performance because who can argue with class and tradition and doing things the right way? You can't argue it, but it's also nebulous. You, you don't have to point to anything with any specificity. Identify for me what things we do the right way that I should feel good about that replace winning. Identify for me the class and traditions that we exemplify. I mean, these are things that, while they're admirable conceptually, they're also extremely ambiguous. Um, and ambiguity is a great way to distract from specific goals and specific achievement. And I would also say... And that, I mean, it's... You go ahead, Tim, please. Sorry, I was just going to say, like at the end of his speech, you know, Wenger said, oh, my hunger and my commitment is questioned and I can just assure you that it's stronger than ever. And I just wanted no, to run up and shake him because I was like, nobody yeah. is questioning that. That's, yeah, that's exactly. not the debate here. <laughs> no, nobody has ever said the problem with Arsene is he doesn't care. I mean, you yeah. know, if, if caring made the job, I think all three of us would at least be candidates. Let's be honest. You I just still, want I, him to be... I still wouldn't be want to be a th- we want to be a touch more right, but, but, competent. But, Just Clive, a touch yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, competence is what we're looking for. And and again, it's not that I don't think class and tradition and doing things the right way matter. It's just that I don't know what those things are. And saying you're looking back on 1950s Arsenal when you think about 2017 Arsenal is like a car manufacturer saying they're looking back on their history of making saddles for horses. It's not even yeah. the same industry anymore. You cannot look back on it that way. 
you cannot ignore the way the money has changed the game and the importance of of winning. You know, these aren't organizations that influence their community in the same way. People don't get to go for the same prices. The players don't have jobs, you know, part-time. It's just a different world. So without going off one on thing, it, One thing, one yep. thing, Elliot. Sorry, but one more thing. Another thing that annoys me, Tim, is when he says, I always respect my contracts. Well, if you're on eight to ten million a year, I do respect my contracts as yeah. well. You know, you know what? No one questions that. If I, if I win no the lottery tomorrow, that. I will respect the annuity. I will I will take the money every <laughs> single year they pay it to me. Um, but to be fair, if you win the lottery, take the lump sum, not the annuity. Um, in any event. <laughs> So there was a game, and we won it, and that was great, and it was nice to come from behind. It would be better if we stopped having to come from behind, particularly in games that we were dominating. Bit of sterile domination, and we'll come to the game of two halves in a moment and why we think that happened in pass maps and statistics and all the fun, nerdy stuff that none of us understand and the reason you come here. But I want to start just by talking about uh, Kloshinats and the importance of this player to this team now and maybe going forward. Tim, we are a team, especially in the three at the back, but... I think for a long time, that has been really effective building play down the wings through its fullbacks, through its wingbacks, through its wide players. What we have not always had is are the players in those positions who execute from those positions effectively. And I mm. think you could compare and contrast uh, Hector Bellerin and, and Kolasinac uh, very nicely, but I think you could look at any of the players that have taken up those roles, uh, whether they be fullbacks or wide forwards like Gibbs or Oxlade-Chamberlain or you know Theo Walcott, and you, can, you can go down the list. How important is it in your mind to have a player like this who occupies a wide position but seems to have such an intelligent delivery of a final ball? Yeah, hugely. It's, I think it's a player we've probably been looking for for a while because I know we old ground we don't need to rake over really but Kieran Gibbs used to take up very good positions but he he really lacked end products and you know Chamberlain's end product was wildly inconsistent the thing about Kolasinac that's that's quite interesting is people who watch the Bundesliga i.e. not me um, tell me that actually he very rarely played at left wing back over the last 18 months that for Schalke last season he was playing in midfield and you can see that. You can see that he's more of a midfielder than a defender. Um, and that's why his end product is very good. It's very precise. Um, I really like the way that he knows when to put his laces through the ball and he knows when to side foot it. And you saw that in the goal and the assist. The goal, um, side foot, but but with a lot of power and a lot of swerve. you got exactly the right connection. You look at his volley against uh, Cologne where he put his laces through it and then you look at his pullback for Ramsey where you know nice pass with the instep he had a few skills as well a few nice drag backs yeah drag backs for Alexis yeah yeah really nice yeah yeah do do you think that partnership is starting to I mean they really haven't had a lot of time on the pitch together do you think what we're seeing from that now is only the beginning yeah yeah definitely and that, and that's that's the important thing as well the relationship between the wing back and the inside forward is very very important um because you know what that what the inside forwards are there to do basically is to pull everyone inwards effectively and that's where our wing backs can get their space because everyone's so um concerned about both being compact, but also about kind of marking Ozil and Alexis, that that's where your space is going to open up um, on the flanks. And, and that's kind of what we did better in the second half. We we, we went to those flanks um, rather than trying to hit the channels. We we used our wide players. And uh, yeah, they're, they're hugely important in this system because they, they allow Alexis and Ozil in field a little bit. They open up that opportunity for combinations. And if you look at, 
the archetypal Arsenal goal under Arsene Wenger is the pullback from from the byline. He doesn't really want crosses being swung in, um, albeit I think Arsenal do that slightly better now than they used to. But it's more about getting into that kind of half space and, you know, going for the cutback rather than, you know, trying to launch one in from the touchline. And a player like Kolasinac with his kind of technical, uh, both both his technical competence and, you know, his physical power um, as well, I, I think is, is really interesting because he can get towards the byline. What I'm finding quite interesting about him is the amount of times the phrase cult, you know, cult hero or cult figure is being used and I was kind of reflecting on why that is and uh, I was wondering if perhaps we're just afraid to call him a good player um, may, maybe <laughs> is, just is it body type big is it, built. yeah I yeah. mean because he right I mean you you see a player who you think should be a center back rampaging down exactly. the flank and playing intelligent delicate pullbacks and and you know drag backs and I think the cult player status comes from seeing someone who looks like a brick shit house center back yeah. playing like an elegant you know Danny Alves style fullback yeah yeah and I mean you know like he's he's East European like you say he's he's built and he looks you know quite mean but you're right he's he's you know he's that, that doesn't tell the story of the way he plays he's got that element to him and I wonder as well if it's just because Arsenal haven't had many players like that um, over the last probably 15 years or so, probably since the Invincibles broke up. We've not really had that. You know, we've had some athletes and some, you know, quite well, but, you know, not like a, a tank kind of guy, as people call him. So it's it's weird, actually. I, th- I think this kind of term cult hero, whilst well-meaning, it, it may be, um, it's maybe slightly you know, slightly does him down um, a little bit because I think he just looks like a really good player that yeah. that fits into our team. And I don't think this is actually what happened because of um, when the sign, I think the signing was done by about February or March, i.e. before we moved to the wing-backs, uh, the wing-back system. But that system suits him so well. It's almost like we've accidentally bought a player to fit our system. And I was reflecting on the weekend and thinking, what would we have done with him if we stayed with the back four? Would he have just been a left back, um, or you know, or would he have been part of the midfield? Or like, what what would we have done with him? It seems like we've almost by accident bought a player that perfectly fits the system that we weren't well, playing when we signed him. So we sure as hell tried to undermine that by playing Oxlade Chamberlain <laughs> at left wing back and Hector Bellerin yeah. at left wing back and playing him. I mean, it just the more you watch this guy, the more you want to pull your hair out about what we did at the start of the season. Um, if Arsene wants to ever write that book he talks about, I'd love a chapter to just be about August of 2017 and what the <laughs> hell he was thinking the way he picked the team. I mean, it really is unconscionable. But, Clive, I think, you know, first of all, why does anybody ever do anything other than a pullback? Like, pullbacks seem to be the most obvious, effective pass to play from a wide position, and yet so many people just fire in crosses. I mean, is, is that the thing about Kolasinac is that He's accurate, calm, and composed with with the ball that he plays from wide position. What do you love about the the tank, this cult hero? <laughs> yeah, I just like the fact that he's got um, he's got layers to his passing, right? So he can do he can he can smash the ball across, he can dink it, he can chip it, he can he can side foot it across, he can shoot from wide areas. So when the ball comes, he's got. He can do lots of different things. I mean, we can all close our eyes now and think about the Ox and think about um, 
at Gibbs, just in those wide areas. And we can we can see their crossing technique, and it's just like one of they've got one of one. One smashes it and one one screws it behind the goal. So it's just like it's just more accurate really. And then, and what I like is, you know, the whole game was all about creating uh, overloads in wide areas. And so if it needs tight passing, he can play that. He's technical enough to play the the one touch short game. But when he needs to smash a shot, he, he can do that too. And um, and the reason why I think he's a cult figure actually is because I think. But deep down within a lot of Arsenal fans, we are, we're sick of being pushed around. And we've finally got somebody that says, well, push me around if you want, but it's not going to work, right? And um, there was a clip last week when there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle at Everton and he gave John Joe Kenny a stare. I know he's only a kid, but he gave him a stare that mm. I thought, mate, if I was you, I wouldn't go near the ball for the next 10 minutes. I'll just let it, I'll, I'll just let him, I'll let him have it because you've got a good career ahead of you. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. That's what I was actually thinking. He gave him a stare that just froze him. And, um, and I like that. And when you go, when you go away and when you, you go to battle with your team, you know, as a fan, if you travel, you want players that are going to stand up for your club. And I think a lot of Arsenal fans think that he's going to do that, and that's and that's why they like him. That's a good point. I mean, for a team that has has had the label of doesn't like it up them, and we've had a lot of little talented tricksters, you know, like Santi Cazorla, um, it's nice to have a guy who might scare the shit out of the opposition physically, just be physically intimidating. Um, somehow, even Per Mertesacker at 22 feet tall uh, looks more hilarious than intimidating. He's He's more giraffe than a rhinoceros, you know, I mean, so, uh, yeah, it, it is a nice change, and he did really well. Let's do this. Uh, I want to dive into the midfield. I want to talk Ramsey and Shaka, because I think interesting game from them, and the statistics regarding how they played are interesting. So let's talk to Scott for a minute, and then we'll come back and break it down. Okay, Scott is joining us now. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab, and see all of his great statistics work at uh, crabstats.blogspot.com. Scott, thanks for coming on again. Thank you. All right, I think we finally have something interesting to dive into, uh, in part because you can actually get statistics from this game, so now your expertise can really come to the fore. Uh, I think we're always curious to see how our midfield is operating because it has been a source of consternation and focus this season, and so let's take a look statistically at the game our our midfield, or quote-unquote midfield, had this game. Um, What did you see uh, from Shaka and Ramsey statistically? Um, well, a lot of it was a tale of two halves. So in the first, um, I'll, I'll kind of leave the you know the scouting breakdown to, to the more expert people. But at least yes, by thank you. Yes, yes, that makes complete <laughs> sense. You know the expertise from the others. That's what we really depend on. Um, if you look at you know the average touch distance, um, Jaka in the first half. Yeah, sorry, my pronunciation is not the greatest. I'm an American, and you know we don't have fancy names here. Um, he was an average distance um, from goal of 47 um, yards um, in the first half and then 51 in the second. Um, just watching the game, you could definitely tell that him and Ramsey um, were kind of switching off going forward and who was going to be the most forward. Um, and then you also look at Ramsey's average touch, dis- touch distance for the first half versus the second half. It's you know the exact opposite. So Ramsey was an average of 50 yards in the first half and then 45 in the second. So Wow. Uh, surprisingly, Jaka was you know the the further forward of the two for the first half um, between them and Ramsey, but then that switches in the second half, and you can see Ramsey going forward more and getting touches closer to the goal. So, relatively speaking, Ramsey played nine yards further ahead of Shaka in the second half, as opposed to being either level with him or slightly behind him. Um, I mean, Shaka dropped 
four yards deeper is what you're saying, and, and Ramsey was playing roughly five yards more advanced on average yes. for their average yeah, touches? So they, yeah, so they both, um, you know, Xhaka so went five yards further back and Ramsey five yards further forward um, compared to, you know, between the second and first halves. That's really interesting. And out of curiosity, I mean, just in terms of sort of statistical significance, is a five-yard difference in touch distance from goal, like, significant? Is that something that's unusual to see from a midfielder from first half to second half? Um, I, I think it is. I mean, you look at everybody else's um, average, touch, average touch distance between the two halves, and it is roughly the exact same. That's really interesting. Okay, so then, if that's the case, I mean, do we see a correlation or correspondence between those average distance changes and their performance sort of vis-a-vis their passing and other statistics in the match? Yeah, both of them really improved passing-wise between the two halves. So if you look at the passing value added, um, in the first half, Xhaka was at a .06, which, you know, that's not a bad half. That would, you know, come out to about, you know, just over 1 or .1, which is, you know, slightly below average. But then in the second half, he really turned it on and had a .27 value added in the second half, which is a really good number. Um, yeah, point five um, for a game would be um, you know elite level. That's you know what Mesut Ozil's been averaging for the season. Um, and, and then he was Aaron point Ramsey, two seven for the half. For the half, right? Yes. So, so, so I mean, uh, that would have been sort of an elite level game if he had two halves of that, essentially. Exactly. Well, I mean, point two seven by itself is still you know really good. Agreed. I mean, I think that yeah. puts it in like an eightieth percentile. Um, and that's in one half that he was able to produce that. Um, what about Ramsey? Ramsey yeah. um, so he was actually um, a negative, um, his passing in the first half, negative .029. And I just um, want to stop you for a second. For people who missed your PPVA explanation, it is a counting stat um, in this particular way that it's being tabulated, <clears throat> obviously throughout the game. And uh, Scott calculates it. I won't go into the methodology because I, I don't know it. But what I do know is uh, not only does it give you a positive calculation for uh, completed pass in certain areas, there's also a negative calculation for misplaced passes depending on the area they're misplaced. So that's how you can have a negative uh, for the match or for a half of the match. Exactly, yeah. Because, I mean, if you looked at it, you know, it was only 60% in the defensive third. This is Ramsey. Um, 87% in the middle third and 58% in the final third in that first half. So So he's getting pretty heavily dinged for those 40% in the defensive third that he's... That he's not yeah, so yeah, those missed passes, they're going to you know, push him to negative. He's, he's not a high-volume passer, so when you miss something as a, um, you know, something like that, it's going to be uh, pretty negative against you. But then he really did have a much better second half, um, not just in producing the goal, um, but actually his passing. So he went from a negative number to a .11, which is a, a very solid number, and it pushed him into the .08 for the game. So between the two of them, um, they both really improved. Um, the other thing that really jumped out at me looking at passing, um, Xhaka in the second half was actually 11 of 12 on his long passes. Um, you could just tell that he seemed to really um, hone that in and he was pinging them around. Um, you know, he obviously had that awesome pass to, to Kolasinac. Uh, for the uh, assist on Ramsey's goal. Yep. Mm-hmm. For, yeah, for the assist on Ramsey's goal. So that was, you know, you could see that he really kind of got his distance down in the second half on those long passing. Well, I mean, that, that's really fascinating. And I, I think, you know, you wonder to some extent if that's that five extra yards deeper and the fact that Ramsey's a little further forward means that he has a little more space to see what's going on up the pitch and do what he does well. Because sometimes I think he's better at, you know, spraying a 20-yard pass to the wings than he is a five-yard, you know, wall pass to his, to his midfield partner. Um, and Ramsey, who we've always felt improves the closer he gets to the box, got closer to the box, and his, his game improved. And I think it's interesting, Scott, because last season when we, when we debuted the, the three at the back, I think the midfield really struggled, and Ramsey and Shaka struggled in part because 
Ramsey was containing himself. He was playing within himself. He was trying to stay more in the midfield. They were alternating who goes and who stays, and it, it wasn't creating a lot of opportunities. Once they had those clearer identities and defined roles where Shaka sat and Ramsey went, everything started to click into gear. And there was a microcosm of that in this game, and the statistics you provided really bear that out. A, a sort of sterile domination first half in some ways with Ramsey playing deeper and Shaka playing a little further forward, neither passing the ball as effectively. Second half, they switch roles. Shaka drops that bit deeper. Ramsey gets that bit further forward. Both of their passing improves. We create more chances, and we wind up uh, uh, winning the game thanks to it. So that's really good stuff. Um, we will find a way, I'm sure, during the main analysis uh, on the podcast to uh, totally ruin that exceptional uh, <laughs> statistical analysis you've done, but uh, really appreciate it. Again, Scott is on Twitter, O underscore that underscore crab. His uh, st- statistics, his uh, data is available at crabstats.blogspot.com. He also does some public Tableau stuff where you can uh, play around with the, the data that he collects and make your own radars and things like that. So really fun to explore. Scott, thanks, and we'll look forward to talking to you uh, after the Europa League match, uh, home to Red Star on Thursday. Sounds good. All right, talk to you then. Thank you. Okay, so that's that's the statistics. That's the data. Now let's dive into what it actually means. Um, and by let's, I mean Tim and Clive, because I obviously have no idea what it means. Um, Tim, so obviously in the first half, Ramsey playing a little further from goal. Uh, 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 Shaka a little bit further forward, and it didn't seem to work. Um we weren't taking the wide positions that were offered to us, maybe forcing the ball centrally a little bit. Uh, to you, was the problem really that, that the spacing wasn't right in the midfield? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I, I don't think it was just the midfield. I think the spacing wasn't right, period. Um, I think Swansea caught us a little bit by surprise um, by playing with two up front, and that meant we couldn't really push the uh, the centre-backs up as far as we probably would have liked um, and particularly when, you know, I think Pear got exposed a couple of times on the counter. Um, and actually, Swansea were quite smart and quite brave to go with that, to go with two quick strikers who can get in behind. And um, I think particularly when you play with a back three, um, you kind of need to have two up front um, if you're going to exploit some of the gaps that appear. Mm-hmm. So... I think we couldn't quite push the defence up. I also think Arsenal were a little bit impatient. And instead of hitting the flanks with uh, Kolasinac and Bellerin, we were looking to hit the channels like straight away. So Xhaka, I felt too often, was kind of looking for Lacazette in behind, for example. And it was too quick and it, it wasn't quite patient enough. And there just wasn't really much space there. And I think... And that's not um, really also, his ball either, right? I mean, that's not really no, what he does. He doesn't have his, his no, range for that isn't right. He doesn't go in behind. He goes wide. And I don't know if you remember, there was there was a pass that Ramsey massively overhit as well. I think he was looking for Bellerin, mm-hmm. where he just kind of turns and he just like absolutely wallops it ridiculously <laughs> yeah, hard. <laughs> but we were, we were too keen to get forward too quickly. And actually, I thought all of the spacing was a little bit off. And um, what we weren't able to do was to keep our lines kind of compact and pen Swansea in. So what, what I think, what, what to my eye was happening was that kind of Xhaka would have the ball at his feet and then just like everyone was up front and then he'd try and put a ball in behind, it would get cleared and we didn't have that like that second line there, that second barrier, um, you know, picking the ball up from the clearance and keeping them penned in. It was just, 
um, you know, trying a fairly hopeless ball, it gets cleared. And then, yeah, that, then there's no one there to pick up that loose ball and keep keep Swansea in. And we, we were kind of able to do that in the second half because we were a bit smarter. I think, you know, Ramsey and Jacker, their understanding kind of increased. I think because their their roles are a bit more, a little bit more defined. Well, um, yeah. And I, I mean, it, don't you think it it's pretty eye-opening? I mean, so, so basically what Scott's stats are saying, if I understand this correctly, is Shaka dropped about five yards deeper in the second half. And mm. as he did that, Ramsey pushed about five yards forward. And mm. the result of that is that he actually, Shaka actually, um, his PPVA or, you know, his, his value-added passing improved dramatically in the second half. That he was, his long balls were incredibly accurate in the second half. He had great long ball statistics, great progressive passing statistics. So, I mean, is this a reflection of the fact, kind of like what we saw last season, where when Ramsey goes forward and Shaka sits deeper, both of their best qualities come out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that was a little bit of that was about taking a breath and being a little bit more not necessarily patient in the way that we built the game, but a little bit more structured. But also the reason Xhaka's long passing statistics were so good in the second half, I think he hit Kolasinac nine times um, and it's pass after pass after pass every single time he got the ball. He uh, And I think he dropped five yards further back just to give himself that space because every single time he got the ball, it was diagonal to Kolasinac every time yeah. without fail where Swansea had like really squeezed in. Um, and I think that's why his kind of uh, passing went up. And I think the thing with Ramsey as well, um, you know, I, I think my slight kind of grumble with Ramsey, maybe, maybe last season was um, he was making those runs forward too quickly. So he was almost like trying to play like a centre forward where in his role, it's much better if you arrive late. And we saw that with the second goal where he came he came into the picture a little bit later. And I think actually this season, he's been doing that much better. If you watch the Everton game, um, watch pretty much every goal we've scored in the last couple of weeks. And Rams is hovering. He's, mm. you know, he's he's in the camera lens somewhere. Um, because and it's usually because he's getting he's arriving quite late. Even Kalasanac's goal, he's there for the rebound um, because he arrives quite late, and that's when he's much better. And, and actually, there, there are some good stats that um, I think Lewis Ambrose on Twitter was was talking about as well. Ramsey taking more shots per ninety than ever before this season, um, but fewer from outside the box than ever before. So he's had more shots than ever inside the box and fewer than ever outside. And that tells you that either, whether it's him or Arson or a mixture of both of them, that something's happening there that's about increasing his efficiency. Mm-hmm. And um, and the finish as well, I felt he, he had almost an identical chance at Goodison on his strong foot, actually, and he lashed it and it went miles over the bar. But this one, he caressed it in. And um, again, I... I wonder if that's because he analysed that finish in exactly the same position at Everton and thought, right, no, I, I thrashed the last one. I've got to, like, just stroke this one. And, um, and Fabianski's in goal, so, you know. <laughs> it, and it, it caught him off guard because he, yeah. he was expecting the lash, having probably trained with Ramsey for a few years. So I think there's real evidence there that, that, they're, that the two of them are working on their individual games, certainly. I still think their partnership might need a bit of work, but... 
um, I, I think if their individual games improve, we'll probably get there naturally anyway. Yeah, I mean, Clive, is it is it? It's so unusual. I think it's so rare that you just firsthand get a view of Arsenal doing it wrong and Arsenal doing it right in the same match, broken down almost by 45, uh, 45 minute increments. And look, Swansea hadn't conceded a lot uh, of away goals, I believe. Um, you know, I always think that when you're quoting statistics, you should go off feeling. So my feeling is that they haven't conceded a lot away from home. Um, but you know, it's interesting, right? First half. Ramsey a little deeper, Shaq a little more advanced. Neither one super suited to those roles. Shaq has played virtually no long balls. His passing was off. Ramsey's passing was way off. Um, and then they split, and Shaka drops deeper, and suddenly he's pinging long balls, and he's finding that overlap. And if you look at our pass map, it's a horseshoe. You know, Swansea gave us the wide positions, and in the second half, we were much more effective at utilizing them and getting the ball there. So for you, I mean, Clive, is, is this the blueprint that forgetting the big games for a minute, but when smaller teams come to the Emirates or even when we go to the smaller teams, let Ramsey play those five yards further forward, let Shaka play those five yards further back, and, and those are the roles now. That's the blueprint for, for our, our attacking dynamic against these smaller sides. It, it, it's a blueprint. I think, I think positionally, um, we were. I don't see that as the biggest issue, if I'm honest with you. For me, it was pace of pass. And that was the issue. It was all too slow. And so when you're moving the ball slow, people can stay into position. So I really felt there were a couple of things that really stood out for me. When we played Everton, the first thing that you saw was the slickness of pass. And that's because we were challenged. We were challenged physically. We were pressed. We were challenged around the pitch. So it forced a pace into our passing. It forced us to be technically quicker and more intense. Against Swansea, they they dropped in. They dropped in. They didn't want to play us. So, so we were lulled into a full centre of security. And we just passed the ball around, thinking eventually someone will do something. He goes to Alexis. He does a little shake and bake, a little dribble, dinks it a little diagonal across the box, runs out for a goal kick. We jog back in, pass, pass, pass. And I don't think the positions were that key. What was key was the intensity of the passing and the pace of pass. So Shaka's long balls were harder and faster. The passing was of a higher pace. And what that means is as you're stretched and you travel over to close the player, you're now arriving half a second late. And then you can be set off balance. When you're set off balance, Arsenal almost did it, you know, the old Phil Jackson triangle offense, right? They do a triangle, bang someone's off balance let's do a quick one two let's get in behind and then a square pass across the box and that's what we did and so it was the pace of the diagonal the pace of the switch which meant eventually they were half a yard one yard too late when they arrive they arrive not set as your defender when you close down the space you bend your legs you bend your back you adjust your feet and show your shoulders one way to show them back into the crowd they didn't do that because we were now catching them. They were just a little bit slower and we sped up. And I think positionally, yes, we had the right people. You know, we got Shaka who can play those passes and I see people criticising, but for me, we don't win the game without him because he was a he was the quarterback of the day and he actually was the main part of the game plan. And when we scored, I don't know if you notice it, Tim, but I'll do the game as well at the weekend. When we scored, sitting right behind Benga, he did like a switch signal 
when we scored. Keep switching it. Keep switching mm. it. Keep switching it. And I, and I thought, yeah, this is it. We were switching it in the first half, but it was just too slow. Right? So, positionally, yeah, we we know we have a one-man midfield. It's called Shaka, and he's, he's slow and he can't run. Uh, Tim's points about about Ramsey arriving absolutely I agree 100% with that I think he's too he's, he's often too keen to get forward his timing is getting better and even the chance to him at Everton he was there too soon so he's having to dig that out from behind him mm. if he leaves the space to run into these are side foots for him he's really just got to slow down slow down and arrive when the ball's arriving. And this guy's got 15 and 20 goals in him because he just smells it. I just wish he would just calm down. I mean, we're talking half a yard, two yards. If he slows down and then leaves that to run into, he'll get chances. But if it breaks down, because he's running through to a centre-forward position, he can never do recoveries from there. He can't get back. Right, so now he's... I, I call our, mil, our midfield, I've got a little name for it, right? I call it the fill the bucket midfield because we refill, we recover. We have one man in there and we recover from our wing backs, we recover from Alexis, we recover from Ozil and we recover in from Ramsey and they make a lot of recovery tackles from the wrong side, right? So, um, But if he goes through to centre forward, he can't recover and that's when we, when we do concede, people then look at the old screenshots and say, well, where was he? Oh, he was too high at centre forward, like at say Stoke, for example. So I've seen a much better calmness arriving. I still like a little bit more, um, but I see a little bit more circumspectness with his timing, and distances are slightly closer, which allows him to do more recovery tackles, which mm-hmm. makes us more secure. I do, I do think tactically. I've not always agreed with how we set up with those two, but I'm now seeing the benefit of. Ramsey's role, pushing teams back, allowing Shaka to have the, the space to do what he does. And yeah. I think it's, it's high risk, but it worked again at the weekend. So yeah. Two in a row. Uh, and speaking of buckets, uh, ha- have you heard about the man from Nantucket? <laughs> he, he liked buckets too. Um, yeah. No, you know, I mean, I think that, but I, I, I will just, to make the narrative fit, which is what I do. Um, I do think that they're, the way Shaka dropped deeper is related to what you're talking about, Clive, because, look, the closer you get to goal, the faster the ball has to move, right? If you're in your own defensive third, you could take three seconds on the... I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about when you're playing against Spurs or, or you know, Liverpool. When you're in your, own, your defensive third, you can take three seconds on the ball to make a pass. When you're standing in the middle of the pitch, yep. you might have a second or two to make a pass. When you're standing on the edge of the area, you might have half a second. Everything's got to be first time and on the half turn, and there's no time for the extra touch. Shaka is yep. not quick to receive, and he is not quick to give it. He is a player that likes to look up, survey the pitch, play the long ball break the lines but he is not a receive it on the half turn and one touch it to a partner that's not how he plays and when he's closer to goal he has less time and he's exposed the ball gets taken off him or he can't make a progressive pass you drop him deeper and he can survey he can collect he can see where the overlaps are happening and ping those long passes so maybe i'm just making the data fit the narrative but i think your point about the ball moving faster and more intention passing is in part due to the fact that Shaka was starting to play passes from an area of the pitch that accommodates his skill set, if that makes sense. Agreed. It does. Okay. And you're absolutely right. So think, let's give you another scenario, right? So we, if you set up that way all the time with Shaka at the base all the time, what's a team going to do? They could do exactly what Everton did. 
They sent a player out with a message to say, get on to him. So it, the fact that Ramsey may have been a little bit deeper, I actually think that's really good. And the reason why, because you're messing up anyone's game plan. You're saying, if you're going to mark him, we're going to switch these around for the first 10 minutes or so. We're going to switch these around for 10 minutes. And I quite like that option. Because what it does, it messes up defensive plans. It messes up strategies. They can't trap us because they don't know who to trap because we're switching. We settled on you know, with Ramsey going forward more and Chaka at the base. And we were allowed to do that because our running was more aggressive. We pushed them back with more intensity. And the ball movement was more aggressive. So don't distress that we swap them around at times. Because if you do the same thing every single week, I promise you, those nerds on the laptops will work it out and they'll send a game <laughs> plan against us. That's what Everton did. And we could all see, as soon as Shaka was on the half-term, not looking at, with his back facing his goal, and he had the ball coming towards him, two or three of them sprinted at him. It was like, that's the trigger, let's go. You know, So Benger may have reacted to that and said, I'm going to be a little bit more cute. And mm-hmm. just vary the roles for a few minutes. We'll get them in the end. We yeah. made a mistake like we always do. We're one down and then we have to fight back. But we got there in the end. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it all starts to work a little better. I mean, the, the, the reality is that this is, you know, there are teams that take seasons to really perfect their style and their system and managers that need years to to design an, an approach to playing and you know, we're not even one season in to playing in the back three yet and with this midfield pairing. And, you know, it's starting to come together and the players are starting to learn their roles and their partnerships. And, and when it works, it really is a pleasure to watch. And I actually thought we had a good second half. You know, Tim, we talked about uh, Kolasinac, but, like, we, we haven't really talked about Hector Bellerin much at all in this podcast. And I looked, and the guy is number two in the team in XG Chain, and he is always, every single game he plays, one of the top three in XG Chain, meaning... You know, XG Chain calculates your contribution to a move that results in a shot, right? So in other words, overwhelmingly, when a move that we have results in a shot, Bellerin has been involved. He is a player to me who is on the brink of being a supernova, of being sensational. And I think the problem for him right now is precision in the final third. Just just an extra yard here or there on his passes that, that... prevent him from being flawless. Are we underappreciating how close we are to having a superstar right wing back? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think he's he's really, really come on. I think um, I think Adrian Clark highlighted something, uh, you know, maybe slightly concerning after the Watford game about him allowing players, you know, space to run at him. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I can't help but think that's kind of by instruction. But I, I mean, other than that, I think since he's been in this wing back role, I think there's clear evidence of progression. And I think you're exactly right. I think he he's almost got, um, you know, a touch of the Ramses, as it were, in that he is always in the right position, but the execution just isn't quite there. Um, but you'd back him to get that right. I mean, this this was a guy who. I mean, he had the best footballing education in the world. He was a midfielder at La Masia. So, I mean, in terms of his technical competence, and then he's come to play for an Arsene Wenger team. So in terms of his technical competence, you wouldn't really worry too much about him, you know, about him finally getting there. He, he just needs um, maybe, maybe less of that kind of Ramsey looking for, you know, just looking for that, that 
that kind of little bit of restraint maybe and and looking across to his his colleague over on uh, left wing back who does seem to find the right delivery at the right time um and i think uh, bellerin is similar in that he's got um a lot of clubs in his bag you know i think he can cross it he can drive it in um was it his cross for lacazette where Lacazette went for the diving header yep. and just yeah. missed. Oh, it just missed it. It's a good cross. Yeah. Lacazette just comes up short on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he can fizz them. He can float them. He can do the pullback. You know, he can, he, he's got a range of delivery, but I think you're right. It's, ju- it's just that kind of, that half yard. Sometimes he's that half, you know, that half yard, maybe too far back. It's, it's nearly there. Basically, it's very nearly there. And mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, if if you're looking for the absolute benchmark, possibly of all time in this position is Danny Alves, and um, and I I think you know I I kind of see that similarity. You know that that way that he's at once a kind of a midfielder, a winger, and a defender all at the same time. And I I think you're absolutely right. I think um, maybe he had a little bit of a lull last season. No, I wouldn't say a drop in form. I would I would say a lull. I'd say maybe he. Well, he picked up you know, an injury, right, and missed time, and yeah. then came back not looking great. And, you know, you never want to prognosticate yeah. or hypothesize about these kind of things. Speculate is the word I should be using in English there. But, like, you know, he did get the concussion from the elbow yeah. uh, uh, against Chelsea from Alonso, and you just – he didn't seem right for a period there. Then he had to adapt to the change yeah. to a back three. So it's natural there was going to be some regression. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think – He's another player that will really, really benefit from having a centre forward like Lacazette, um, having that guy who's a really alive in the box, um, you know, who probably favour, shall we say, the more technical style of delivery rather than, you know, the cross looking for the header um, that, that, you know, Giroud favours. Um, and Lacazette is a guy who is so alive in that penalty area. Um, I, I tweeted about this today, but watch that Kolasinac goal back again and watch Lacazette's movement because after he does the back heel, he doesn't kind of stand there and admire. He realises he's offside and he sprints back to get back onside just in case, um, both just in case the goalkeeper parries it and there's a rebound to be had, but also he, he understands, you know, like I, I don't want to be... I, I, if this goes in, I don't want to be in an offside position. He's very, very aware like that. Yeah. And I think Bellerin, a player who likes to combine, if, you know, it's, it's Ozil is the right inside forward and he's got Lacazette up front. I mean, I think that can only help him. Um, you know, the, those are the combinations he'll be looking at and, and that really can only help him. Particularly if you've got Xhaka, you know, kind of favouring the left-hand side and hitting the left wing back, then Bellerin can focus on those short combinations which I think he's really good at and kind of work his way to the byline with mm-hmm. with Ozil and then look for Lacazette I, I think that's a that that's a chain that could be very promising for us and maybe the thing that's just a little bit more difficult for Bellerin than for a, a Kolasinac is that on the left side you have Alexis who makes your job easy in the sense that you give him the ball he carries it inside he drags the defenders away from you and you just have to run into the space and be available whereas Ozil is a player who's going to go find the space where the defenders aren't and occupy a space mm. where you can, if you give him the ball, suddenly you're in a very dangerous position because Ozil now has a lot of options. I think the problem, though, is that means you have to deliver the ball accurately into that space where Ozil wants to go. And that's harder, right? That's harder than just giving it to a player and having him clear everybody away for you. 
So, um, you know, maybe it just means him fine-tuning his his passing and his awareness around the box a little bit. I mean, Clive, do you... I mean, do you think that Bellerin is someone who maybe has flown under the radar unfairly and, and is on the brink of a, of a big breakthrough for us? Well, I think he's already had it, right? If he, if he went on the market, I'm sure um, and almost any club in the world would try to buy him. Right? He's he's a very experienced 22-year-old. He's played a lot of Champions League games. He's played a lot of time with no real sort of backup so he has to play three times a week. He does that with very. I know he got an ankle injury, but it was more of a, a kick, a kick twist injury. He doesn't have too many breakdowns muscle wise. He's a very fit boy. He got a little bit heavily muscled at one point last year, probably as a result of having to go into the gym to work out rather than run, so he could play. And so he just got to be bulked up a little bit. But he seems to be back in shape now. I think he's. I think he's fantastic. I think. A lot of times with wide players, I always it's not just Bellerin, it's like other wide players that we have. The common sort of statement is, oh, they've got to improve their final ball. Well, I, I think that's so like, um, if you think about wide players running at absolute top speed, the technique of accuracy at top speed is very, very difficult. And what people should be thinking about is how many times against that position. Now, to have a wide player that can't beat his man, can't run past his man, can't time his runs, can't have that ability to see the run, play off both feet, that's really the thing that we're looking for. And the, the final ball is the, is the coup de grace. So we, as fans, we focus on the final output. But really, we should be focusing on the ability to get in. Right, so the ability to drive the space, to drive shoulders, and and I think we're critical too much of the final ball. Okay, but if we if you keep kicking it out into the car park, then you deserve it, right? So, um, <laughs> but that's he's not doing that. We're talking no. about he's passing the ball into barricade boxes. Everyone follows Mourinho's style now. I'll just stop you for one second, box. Clive. I j- just want to make yes, a point mate. in defense of grousing fans. Is I think what makes it so unfortunate for Bell- Bellerin is he gets into these great positions and he can carry it into positions where there's danger and he creates so many opportunities for a goal-scoring chance. And yeah. so I think he almost creates his own disappointment in the sense exactly. that then when the last ball isn't quite right, instead of people focusing on the fact that, wow, he nearly created a great opportunity, they focus on the execution in the final ball that wasn't there. Yeah, and it's, it's just how you look at football. I mean, I, if you go back to the cup final where I thought he was, I thought he was brilliant oh, he in was the cup great. final. great. Yeah, he dominated Alonso. Twice now he's, he's dominated Alonso. Yeah. He just, just he, ran, he ran him off his feet. And there's pictures of him running 10 yards behind him. And Bellerin has a shot or a cross just past the post. And people say, oh, wow, he's got to improve his final ball. And I'm looking at Alonso with an iron lung on the sideline, right? So it's like, it's, it depends how you look at it. I, I, I'm not saying you're people are wrong to criticise his final ball I'm just saying 22 years of age very young for a defender the, we had a guy at, at just gone from Tottenham to Man City for 50 million I think he's 28 he's just finally breaking through to the top level at 28 this guy's 22 and I hope people are not too critical of him because he's one that's been there since he was 16 you know, he's an Arsenal boy, right? And we should be, I think we should be cherishing a lot more than we actually do. I think we're very, very hard on him. 
and he's been there for a long time and I think we need to respect that a little bit more and, and encourage him a little bit more and hopefully he'll be around for many, many years. Amen. Um, one thing I want to finish off on this game and then I just want to touch on another topic that's been hotly debated uh, on the interwebs this week. Uh, Tim, this is a new segment I want to introduce. I think it could be a really effective segment, maybe even better than, than Scott's little stats uh, bit that we did. This is called, Does Elliot Have a Point or Is He Just a Whining Maniac? Um, <laughs> so your opinion, does Elliot have a point in being annoyed that Giroud got subbed on for Lacazette again or is Elliot a whining maniac? I, I, I want to just color this by saying Giroud likely in line for a start on Thursday, played 120 minutes uh, uh, last week. So whining maniac or has a point? Uh, somewhere between the two. Um, Thanks for your honesty. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that Lacazette looked um, pretty tired um, by the end again. And, and again, like I'm no fitness expert, so I don't know if this kind of bringing him off after 75 to 80 minutes all the time helps him to get fit for 90 or not. Um, I, I, you know, that's not my area of expertise. I would have thought, you know, um, you've got a, you've got to meet the wall to punch through it as it were. So um, maybe 90 at this point would be quite good for him. I mean, that said, I I don't think, you know, we were really at a stage where we were looking to hit Swansea on the counter and they still weren't leaving a huge amount of space in behind. So I don't think this wasn't as stark as like the Watford game, um, for example. And, you know, against Everton, uh, Wenger didn't go for Giroud he brought Jack Wilshere on in the end because clearly he saw that kind of quick movement of the ball was was working really well I you know I I, I didn't think it was a terrible decision this time um, you know I didn't think it was I didn't think oh what we really need now is Olivier Giroud but I didn't at the same time when he came on I didn't think oh god no this is going to ruin all that fluent attacking we've been doing because I I didn't think the performance was quite there um, and I actually felt that when you're protecting a 2 1 lead, um, yeah. it's, you know, and, and at that stage we were kind of protecting it, um, albeit Swansea massively threatened. I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was the worst thing, um, to be quite honest with you. So okay. I, I thought it was a, a bit maniac of a meh. <laughs> a right. bit of a meh substitution, I, really. I thought I thought I agree with Tim. I thought it was a slightly defensive move. They were just getting the three free kicks into the box, and I thought, you know what, let's not get him get a corner, a free goal, and we get end up with a two-two draw. I think he, I think he looked after his penalty area a little can, bit in that game. Can we at least yeah. agree that that Giroud's not really impacting the game as a sub as he had last season, and that maybe maybe he's just been a little less effective. Than we're used to him being that his touch and his his control his quality is not maybe at the level that we expect from him. Yeah, maybe not quite. But um, at the same time, I think if we bring him on, you know, particularly at home and it's two two, or you know, we're losing on. Oh yeah, yeah. When you're playing balls into the box, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, we, yeah, we like all agree with that. Uh, I, I think that's yeah. a scenario where he makes a lot of sense, of course. And it was interesting yeah, because yeah. I don't know if you guys had the same commentators that we had um, on NBC uh, here in the United States, but even in the first half, they were saying he needs to bring on Giroud. They need a focal point. And so, you know, obviously I'm going to have to go shopping for a new TV now, which sucks, uh, <laughs> having put my uh, my foot through it. But anyway, all right, so that's that's it for that game. Good enough. We'll, we'll talk about Red Star after Red Star. I don't think we need to do a preview of a, a game that uh, you know really doesn't matter. Um, so let's do this really quickly. Uh, this was Arson's 800th 
something, right? Yeah, eight hundred. Yeah, yeah, something. I don't. Eight hundred. What Premier League game? Premier League game. Premier League that, game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, right. So he hasn't had luck with anniversaries. This was one of his better one. We all remember his thousandth game in charge, or have tried to uh, do the whole Men in Black uh, brain wipey thing, neuralizer, but. One thing that's kind of come up is that actually how remarkably consistent he's been. Other than the years that, the, that in, uh, incorporated the uh, uh, Invincibles, he's produced roughly the same number of points for every 100 Premier League games. Again, with the exception of the 100 that encompassed the Invincibles. And it leads to the debate about consistency. Um, it is incredibly difficult to do that through the years, through the decades, to produce the same amount of points every 100 games to keep your team roughly at or around the top. And yet, in the last decade, despite the fact that we keep producing roughly the same amount of points, there's never any positive variance. We have not had a real legitimate title challenge since, I guess you'd say, 2007, 2008. So, Clive, I'll start with you. Um, Is there a value to consistency that we don't appreciate or is consistency really failure in in a industry? I hate to call it an industry, but in an industry where the goal is is achieving the top level, right? That that what you're really trying to do is win, and everything else is you know if you're not first, you're you're last. Um, to you, are, are we underappreciating the the consistency, or is consistency not what we should be striving for? Um, consistency is one of the hardest things in in um, sport to achieve, especially at the top level, because your landscape is changing all around you. So you, if you do the same things you did last year, you're not going to be consistent. So you have to ramp up your game consistently to to achieve the same things you did last year. So to do that for 20 plus years is incredible, right? So, but the thing about the the landscape, the landscape has changed, and so. We are trapped on a, on, a, on a number of points, approximately, that we get per game. And that will potentially get us anywhere between second and fifth. And last year, even though we did quite well points-wise, we ended up fifth. Because the nature of the Premiership has changed. The smaller clubs are thinking about survival and playing each other. And, they, and they're giving up points to the top clubs primarily that was the theme that was last year and so he he has to find a way to take us to the next level to get the extra sort of 10 points that we need to really compete and this is what's exciting about this season in my opinion because the Europa League is the one different thing this season and and how we react to the games around the Europa League how we can actually make 10-11 changes in European weeks which means our top players who we're seeing, for example, better form from from players like Ramsey. And let's be honest, if he was playing three times a week, I don't think he would be fit right now. And so the fact he's only playing from week to week, we're seeing a player progressively get better. And I saw some articles today about him being compared to Frank Lampard again. The reason why, he scored two goals in two games. And suddenly the output, people are looking at him differently. right? So, so I think that the Europa League is really something that's given us a chance to make that points differential slightly greater. But going back to your original point, consistency is very hard to to do. And But the, the problem with consistency is our mistakes are becoming consistent, and that's what people are concerned about, really. And that's We're succeeding in the same ways and failing in the same ways. 
Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I mean, isn't the problem, and, right, that, that I don't watch football to the, the same way I watch my mutual fund. I watch football for exhilaration. And so, you know, while yeah. finishing fourth is creditable, and I recognize that, and doing it every single year is incredibly difficult, it doesn't ever give me the exhilaration. And so the problem is, while it's great for Kroenke, and it's great for the brand at some level, and it's, it's a, an incredible achievement and a very difficult achievement, that if what fans want from supporting a football club is that moment of exhilaration, and we're just talking in the league right now, all right? Because the, the FA Cups yeah. were exhilaration. We've we've talked at length about how important they've been because they've given us that. I mean, isn't that the problem? And, and I'll just shift it over to you for a second, Tim, and Clive, you can certainly come back on this. Isn't yep. the problem that consistency, no matter how difficult it is to achieve and no matter how many benefits it brings with it for the club, it doesn't deliver the exhilaration that is the reason we pour our hearts and souls into this? Yeah, of course. And this this isn't an issue that's unique to Arsenal, actually. Look at um, a club like Stoke City um, at the moment. And I, I, I had a kind of, I forget which podcast it was on. They they asked the question. <clears throat> there are other podcasts? Something like, well, doesn't, apparently Doesn't so. ring a bell. And, it, and basically they said, um, what's the what's the point in supporting West Brom? Um, which was the, the slightly tongue-in-cheek kind of provocative, um, pro- provocatively phrased question. But, you know, clubs like West Brom and Stoke and even clubs like Southampton now who are in that kind of, yeah, we're mid-table, we're not going to be in a relegation fight, but at the same time, we've got no hope of going any higher. Um, and so what about clubs like that? And, and, and basically, so what it is, is clubs have levels, managers have levels as well. So if your aspiration is to avoid relegation, Hire Sam Allardyce, hire Tony Pulis. They will keep you up and they will probably get you into mid-table. If you put Tony Pulis and Sam Allardyce into a job in the top seven, they wouldn't be able to do it because they play damage limitation football. And it's kind of the same with a manager like Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes is an archetype. If you've got a mid-table team, he'll keep you mid-table, but you can't go any higher and he probably couldn't firefight and go any lower. There are just... Managers just operate in different parts of the table. And I just think that Wenger is probably um, kind of in a bit of an island in that he will get you 70 to 78 points every single season. And um, I'll kind of I'll repeat a phrase I heard earlier today, which is if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And that's that's kind of what's happening with Arsenal, really. We've got we've had a manager for so long who gets within that range of points, let's say 70 to 80. And what's happened is the league has changed around him. Look at the league table from last season. 13 teams finished with a negative goal difference. There was 15 points between 8th and 7th. You know, this league is compacting. It's becoming, you know, it's becoming three leagues almost in one, but very, very distinctly. And, you know, you've got... Do you remember not long ago we used to talk about the big four? Now it's the top six mm-hmm. that we talk about. Yep. And, you know, there's there's six teams now that have, that have really broken away. And a phrase Ivan used at the AGM, he said, Arsenal have to, we know that to win the league, we have to outstrip all of our competitors in every single metric possible um, on the pitch and off it. And, um, and, and, and I think he's right, uh, which is, why it's frustrating that they don't do it um, <laughs> but but you know so I think that's just Arsene Wenger's level he's 70 to 78 points he'll do it in different ways by hook or by crook that's what you'll get and 
you know, like like we say, some seasons that will get you fifth, some it will get you second. I think the way the Premier League landscape is, that's going to get you fifth or sixth and not much more um, from now on. And therefore, I think that's what we're looking at under the current manager. I don't think he'll get fewer than 70 points. But, you know, that, that you know... We, we need 85 Exactly, well, and, and this exactly. is the problem, right? He is Chelsea he, got ninety three last year, ninety three. Spurs got eighty six, and yeah. you know, weren't, weren't really even that close. No, so yeah. that that tells you a lot. And whether I just realised, Tim, I've just realised that that Wenger is the top six version of Sam Allardyce. Yeah, that's exactly. what he is. <laughs> and I hadn't thought of it that way around, but there you go. That's got to be the title of the podcast. Well, and and, <laughs> and I got to tell you, I mean, it, it is, you do wonder if this is the problem with the way he plays and that he creates an environment where it is enjoyable to play your football, where it is about maximizing your skill set and your talent. It is not as uh, specific and, and um, well-drilled as uh, football at other places, which means it it's not as precise. And the end result is that, like, you can do okay. You can beat some of the small teams and, and players enjoy doing it. And they, but Arsenal have been the kings of picking up meaningless points. Now, I realize none of the points are meaningless. But, I mean, meaningless points in the sense that Arsenal, we don't have a lot of wins we can point to over the last decade where we were playing a team in the Premier League with something massively on the line for us. Um, there are a couple examples where fourth place went down to the wire at the end, but... You know, certainly nothing where a title title challenge was on the line. So, you know, look again, we watch football to feel things. Even feeling upset at football is feeling something, right? I mean, the reason I cut myself in the shower is to feel something, right? Um, but, like, my cutting aside, like, at the end of the day, you look at, you know, Chelsea fans who, you know, finished bottom half of the table and then won the title the next season. Both of those things are feeling things. Um, I just don't know that Arson has delivered, at least in the league, exhilaration and the problem i think what's complicated it by it is one area where we got exhilaration from arson banger over the years was the quality of the football we played the artistry that kind of went through a deterioration and another area where we got exhilaration from arson banger was big games and we know our big game record has been parlous over the past decade so that's gone away so if you're not beating your direct rivals which is a real form source of exhilaration and you're not playing the prettiest football in the league and you're not competing for a title then no matter how impressive it is to be picking up 72 or 73 or 76 points every season, what are your supporters going to get exhilarated by? What's going to lift them to that crescendo? And I realize the past three of the last four seasons, it's been the FA Cup, and that's been brilliant. But it would be nice for that to be happening in the league again. So we'll leave it there. We've got Red Star Belgrade at home on Thursday, and then it is Manchester City uh, at the weekend. And I assure you we will see goals. I cannot assure you any of them will be scored by Arsenal, but I can assure you we will see goals. Tim is on Twitter, at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. Yep. Clive's on Twitter, at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Uh, my name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Please, please, please give us a five-star review. It would mean so much to us if you gave us a five-star review because it's a perfect opportunity to write terrible, nasty, horrible things about Paul or... Scott, I suppose. In any event, uh, we'll be back after Red Star. Cheers. Enjoy the Europa League. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com